So Money episode 1563, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. It is September 8th, maybe September 9th. I was a little bit late recording this podcast. Let me tell you about my week, and hopefully you will find yourself in me, part of you in me. Uh, This is back to school for our kids in Montclair, New Jersey, starting on Wednesday. And the heat wave has resulted in an early school closure across the school district. Uh, Somehow, for some reason, between the hours of one and three, the schools just can't take it anymore. And they let the kids out early. And this meant for us that not only the kids would be out early, but super duper early because we also were depending on aftercare through the school, which was also shut down this week. So my normally eight, nine hour workday was truncated to about three and a half, four hours. And listen, September is usually in my world, the busiest month, one of the busiest months, especially if you're trying to launch a book and it's now we're 27 days out to a healthy state of panic. And so at 7.30 last night, my editor, my podcast editor is like, uh, did you mean to not record something for tomorrow? And I was like, forehead slap. And the truth is I had actually recorded half of this show yesterday to ship out for editing to be ready today on the Friday. But I just, uh, well, you know, life, hashtag life. So apologies, this was a little bit late, but I suppose um, the most forgiving audience I have right now is the So Money audience. My kids, not so much. So if I do drop a shoe, it's going to be on the show, not with my kids. But I'm allowed to do that too. I think parents, you deserve a break. Like I went out to dinner last night with my friends, actually, and I handed my kids to a babysitter and I was worth every penny. Where was I? Oh, yes. The podcast, the book. Uh, So the book is coming out October 3rd, y'all. That is happening very soon. That's three weeks from more or less from today. How do I feel? Well, I have a lot of emotions. Truthfully, though, I'm just trying to not get COVID. Has anyone gotten this recently or has heard from a friend or a school friend or work friend like COVID is back? Not, of course, 2020, but it is still something we have to anticipate. And I've got some book events coming up that I'd really like to show up for. And I don't want to have to suddenly cancel. Uh, I don't have that kind of insurance. (laughs) So fingers crossed. If you are in the New York City area on October 2nd, which is the night before the book comes out, would love to have you at our Brooklyn launch party. This is going to be epic. I've got lots in store. Me and the one and only Mrs. Dow Jones will be at the party. We'll do a Q&A. There'll be audience questions. The gift bags, let me tell you, are really looking pretty swaggy, I have to say. Like I was a little nervous in the beginning of planning this party. I don't know how to get swag for things. And I've just been calling out, calling friends, calling people, calling random PR people, and they have been showing up for us. So if you're coming to that party and it's ticketed, so I know it's not inexpensive, but you're going to get your money's worth. You obviously will get a book, premium drinks, premium food, great company, premium company. And of course, the swag bag, which is really what we all want at the end of the day. 
I'll put the link to the Eventbrite here in the show notes. And I've got other events throughout uh, the New York, New Jersey area and Philly. If you are a listener who lives in those areas or will be in those areas in October, make sure to go to a healthystateofpanic.com. I've got all of the details for those events that are all happening happening in October. We'll hope to have more coming in November and December and all the other months. But you know, in November, my brother's getting married and then it's Thanksgiving. And so I'm just kind of keeping it light in November. I, I, I really just hope that by then the book has built some momentum. There's some word of mouth. It's continuing to sell. And I don't have to be so hardcore, but you know me, I'll probably end up being hardcore in November and December and and all the months. But for now, I can only plan out through October. If you've got ideas for me, please let me know. And and that's really what I want to wrap here with, with the book and everything is just that with three weeks left, it's really the pre-sale season has been going on for months, but now is game time. It's go time. And if you've been wanting to buy the book and you're interested in the book, I would really appreciate that you purchase the book now and not wait. Why? Because this woman, me, I would like to become a bestseller. This is not a goal that I necessarily had with the other books, but in this era of my career, I would like that bestseller status. And, and you know, Amazon is one place to get bestseller status, but there's the Wall Street Journal list, there's the New York Times list, and these lists are very, very difficult to break into, but your sales numbers do matter. The powers that be will take notice and Any book you sell from when your book becomes technically available for pre-order, which is usually six to eight months out till the first week that the book is out counts as your first week of sales. And those first week of sales are what get looked at for consideration onto these lists. And let me tell you, I was looking at the recent New York Times bestseller list, nonfiction and how to, two different lists. There were 15 authors on the nonfiction list, uh, four of them, including Oprah, were women. And then on the how-to list, I think there were nine or 10 titles. One was a woman author. So, you know, I'm just throwing that out there because you get where the pressure is. You, you understand the pressure, right? You understand why this would be an ultimate dream come true uh, because it doesn't often happen for women, let alone women of color. And it's time, it's time that we all collectively worked to change that, change that equation. And of course, when you're a bestseller, bestsellers, that news travels and people will buy your book because it got the vote of approval from the powers that be, the bestseller list powers that... I hope this book reaches as many people as possible. Why? Because I want to help people. That's why I got into this business, right? I didn't get into this business to hit sales numbers. I got into this business to help people. Um, those two things, helping people and sales numbers are sometimes connected. In this case with a book, sales numbers reflect how many people you're helping. And and so I'm going to focus on those sales numbers because that to me indicates that this book is getting into people's hands and I'm able to get this message out about fear, that you don't have to be fearless to be successful and to feel fulfilled in life, that fearlessness is not courage. Actually, it's recognizing your fears, unpacking them, 
and having an emotionally intelligent relationship with your fears so that you can become self-aligned and go make those great, awesome decisions in your financial life, in your career, in your relationships. This is the message of the book. If this resonates with you, if there's someone in your life that needs this book because they're so down on themselves for having anxiety or fear or trepidations and they're not good with risk, well, I would love to help them vis-a-vis a healthy state of panic. Go to healthystateofpanic.com. All right, moving over to the iTunes review section, the Apple podcast. I can't get it right. It's the Apple podcast review section. You can tell I started podcasting in 2000 and went out 15. Yeah, so podcast, Apple podcast. Let's go to pick our reviewer of the week. Uh, This week, we're going to say thank you to Veer the King, who calls the show outstanding. Farnoosh is gifted in making tough topics sound easy and maybe even fun. She is thoughtful, strategic, and on the money. Love listening to this podcast and feeling empowered. Thank you so much, Veer. Email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com or DM me on Instagram, farnoosh tarabi there. Let me know you left this review and I will give you a link where you can select a time for us to connect for your free 15-minute money session. The theme for this Ask Farnoosh today is fear of money. It's a chapter in the book, chapter six to be exact. It's central to the book. It's the only chapter that talks exclusively about the fear of money. But of course, it's sprinkled throughout the book too. But the way I designed the book was very deliberate. It, it go it travels through nine different fears, starting with the fear of rejection and then loneliness and FOMO. Then we get to later on the fear of money, which I feel like is so related to some of those early fears. And later on, after the fear of money, we travel to the fear of failure, the fear of endings, and the fear of uncertainty and also the fear of uh, losing your freedom. And the fear of money is central to the book because it is, in my mind, if there's like sort of an anatomy of fear, money is often the central thing, right? We're so afraid of money and we bring to the fear of money so many other fears. Today, I wanted to bring on one of my friends and fellow finance experts, Georgia Lee Hussey, to talk about how she looks at fear in the context of financial planning. And some of the questions that we've pulled, uh, we're going to find the fear in these questions, but flip it and show these audience members and hopefully you listening how to actually work with fear to land on the best possible decisions. I want to do this from now on until the book comes out and maybe even after that. I just think that sometimes before you buy a book, you want to actually understand how the system, how the method works. You hear it's great, but maybe it sounds too good to be true. No, we're going to actually walk you through some examples right now. So here we go. Let's go to the mailbag. Joining me now is my friend and one of the best financial minds out there, Georgia Lee Hussey. Welcome to the show. Georgia, everybody is the co-founder of Modernist Financial. And it's so nice when you're here. I just feel all warm and fuzzy. Oh, it's always a pleasure. I love getting to chat about money questions with you and also really digging into the emotional side. I love that you're yes. so open and obviously very engaged in it, given you just wrote a book on the topic. Yeah, yeah. I just spent the first half of this show talking about all the updates around the book. And I wanted to dedicate the second half of this episode to 
financial fear. And we actually have two questions from our listeners, audience members who are grappling with money questions. And as I say, whenever we're talking about money, we are talking about scary things, high stakes decisions. It's not just like, should I get the strawberry ice cream or the chocolate ice cream? No, those are low stakes, although we somehow seem paralyzed a lot of times around that too. But it's really tough when you're trying to figure out how to save, where to invest, which financial goals to prioritize because it will mean trade-offs and then will that mean disappointment? Anyway, we'll get to those questions in a second. But first, just wanted to open up and talk to you a little bit, Georgia, about fear of money. And I come from the place of like, there's always a bit of wisdom and guidance when the fear of money shows up. It's not always easy to see it that way. What is, the, what is the mistake that you see too many people make when they're afraid of money and whether that is, and just to distill that, like it could be the fear of enoughness, the fear of scarcity, the fear of debt, the fear of investing. There's so many different flavors of fear of mm. money. Yeah. I think you're really speaking to an essential part of the work we need to do as financial beings in the world is to build awareness. So every financial decision is either grounded in awareness or not, or maybe, you know, on a spectrum of of awareness. And I see that fear shows up in a lot of people's decisions. Um, To me, fear is a, is a core emotion. And usually there's valence emotions that are like flags that come up from fear. So sometimes there can be anger. Sometimes there can be, um, like clutching, like a does like a very um, sort of anxious attachment to a particular idea mm-hmm. um, that we sort of get caught on a loop that there's a particular um, solution we have to have or it won't be enough or um, you know whether it's a house or a school for a child or whatever it might be, and so with clients, I'm usually trying to get them back to that core question. And away from the valence solution they think they need to move towards. Um, my favorite example is a client early in my fit career was like very um, attached to the idea of a vacation house. And through the conversation, they're very busy founders of a fast growing company. I realized that they didn't want a vacation house. They just wanted a vacation. Mm-hmm. And it was a much cheaper, much easier solution, but it required them acknowledging that they were tired that they were, and that they were scared of their own capacity to, to rejuvenate. They were scared of the ways in which they were being pulled away from their families. Um, especially one of the, um, it was a heterosexual couple and the founder, the founder who identifies as female was really, um, scared about the ways in which her success was deep, felt like she was deprioritizing her role as a mother and a partner. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it could be, yes, you need a vacation house, but I'm like, do you really need more responsibility and bills mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. things to think about? So I think that's my one of my favorite examples. I love that. I think what I'm hearing too, and I talk about this in the book, is that when the fear of a of not achieving a financial goal arrives in your life, because it is a lot to carry financially, mathematically, it's going to mean not just maybe more money, but in this case with the second home, like more executive functioning responsibilities, <laughs> tasks that it's important to explore why you're afraid of not being able to achieve this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have this vacation home, where does that leave you? Mm-hmm. And and on the other side of that, you're saying, okay, well, I, I feel as though I won't be able to have a place to escape to. I feel like I won't ever be able to slow down. 
after a busy day at work or a busy month at work, and I won't feel like I'm including more peace in my life because if the idea of a vacation home, it just seems so idyllic, right? Like it's by right. the lake or it's by a beach or it's where your family gets together all the time. And I know for, for some people that have vacation homes, they love it because when their kids get older, it's where they come back to. Right. It's a, it's a gathering place. And so they want for that. And, that, and that's no, those are not small things. I think that those are the things worth protecting and worth being afraid of not doing those things if it means happiness, gratification, gratitude, pleasure to you now and in the future. Let's find a way to protect that, but maybe it's the pathway that needs re-engineering. And yes. to your point, like it's not the house. It's we need to go on vacations more or we need to take time off more or we need to set more boundaries in our work life, say no totally. more, which doesn't mean you're not working hard enough or smart enough. It just means you're actually probably doing it right. So I love that. I think when you stop and acknowledge the fear, which we seldom do, we just want to be like, the fear doesn't exist. I'm going to override the fear. I'm going to do the thing anyway without being thoughtful about it. That's when we run into the dead ends. And that's why fear gets a bad rap because we think, yes. oh, fear led me there. But you, there's another way to use fear. And I, I love yes. that example. Yes. Well, let's get to um, our questions from our friends in the audience. Monica has a question that, at the, on the surface may not seem like it's has a, an underpinning of fear, but I mm. always find the fear. And she basically is telling us she has too many goals that she wants to save for. And her fear of money is closely attached to the fear of failure. I mm. think, I think you also have a different perspective, another perspective, mm. like she's telling us if I save too much in one area, then that's going to mean a trade off that I'm not really willing to accept but here's specifically what she says. She says, my husband and I want to find land and build a home in the next few years. We decided we we're going to deal with living in our small house to keep our girls in their school district they've always been in. And my younger daughter will graduate high school in four years from now. So that's our timeline. It gives us time to sort of explore this investment, this real estate investment. My thought is I want to save as much money as I can in cash to pay for the lot, or at least have a big down payment for when we find a lot. We will have over $200,000 worth of equity in our current home that we can put towards the mortgage to build the home. So that way we keep our mortgage reasonable. Here's the thing. We're in our 40s, 40 and 42. We have a small Roth IRA and 401k, about 35,000 in each one between the two of us. So my question is, do I save a lot of cash? Do I invest more? Do I do both? She says, we also have some big ticket items like finishing saving up for our emergency fund. My daughter needs a car in two years. There's spring break every year. I feel like I have 50 savings buckets, but I don't want to lose hope and determination on building a home one day. So she's trying to figure out the best plan forward that will accommodate essentially for all of these goals, I, I hear a fear of failure in the sense that if mm -hmm. she completely puts all of her financial eggs in the real estate basket, then that's going to come at the cost of retirement, retiring well, and mm -hmm. supporting her others, her, her family's other goals. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you, what do you hear from her question? Yeah, I hear a deep question about whether there is enough available to mm -hmm. her. Um, 
And often I find that at the, for myself at the root of that fear is a fear that I'm not enough, that mm-hmm. I don't have the capacity to figure this out. Um, and I think there's two, what's funny about this kind of fear is that there's some truth to it. Like there's mm-hmm. just not enough. We can't all have whatever we want. Um, and I think that kind of weighing of trade-offs and making decisions about where we want to put our resources is, um, can be fear-based, but I think can shift into values-based and starting to make decisions based on what we think is most valuable for us. Um, I think she's also in a very common crunch phase, just in terms of her life, Mm -hmm. where she's got, there's not quite enough room left in the house. The cash is tight. The kids are still in high school. Retirement is becoming real in a way that it probably wasn't five to 10 years ago. Um, And so I think even just acknowledging that this is a moment where cash feels tight is, can be important to make decisions about how to use, um, how to use her cash and how to use their cash. I I have some very specific uh, recommendations here, but Mm. that's my core feeling about what I'm hearing. Mm. I want to get to your recommendations. I want to throw out another hypothesis and, and this may not be true in her situation, but I tend to see in our financial lives when there is a fear, it leads to avoidance of like, okay, investing is scary. Looking at your bank account and going, oh my God, I only have so much in savings, which is not really where I want to be. That's scary. And so rather than address that, we complicate things even further by (laughs) being like, well, I really can't do those things because I got to buy a house too. Mm -hmm. And so we do this to ourselves. It's like we set ourselves up for failure. It's like rather than addressing the thing at hand, we just throw more problems into the bucket. Mm. And so we end up inevitably at a place of feeling helpless and directionless. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the psychology behind that is. It's partly avoidance, I think. Like you don't want to deal with the scary thing. So you make the thing just so out of reach and hard that you just feel like, oh, there's nothing I can do. And maybe that's right. the, that's like the easier way out. I don't know. What do you think she should do? Like, what is the roadmap? Also recognizing that, you know, you mentioned it, that these fears are valid in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so is mm-hmm. there a way to create a blueprint that creates a balance, balancing act for her here? Yeah, it's, um, I agree with you. There's a lot of competing goals that she has. And she's uh, clear enough to be able to speak into that and say, this is where I feel stuck. And I think that's a a great win because many people can't even see that. Um, I think this is going to take a lot of creativity to figure out. Um, I think my first concern is that we often underfund our future selves because our current expenses feel more real than our retirement. And I think, especially once we hit our forties, um, Overlooking compound growth is um, is a mistake, honestly. It doesn't seem – I like to call the first 10 years of retirement saving the boring years. Mm-hmm. Nothing's really happening. You're just adding money. It looks like it's going nowhere. But I remember the first client I had who was in their early 60s, and I looked at their 403B, and their contributions were $250,000, and the, val- the account was worth a million dollars. And I was like, oh, right. Wow. Compound growth. is magical. And so I would say finding some way to balance her future, future self, her 80-year-old self, her 50-year-old self, and her present self is really what I would 
focus on. Um, and I think she can get really creative with this idea of the land purchase. I would not, given how much of her assets are in her house, I would not buy another piece of property before mm. she sells her current piece of property. Um, you know, in four years, her youngest daughter will be off at school. Her house will really just not feel as small as it feels right now because launching, you know, let those chill, those kids go off into the world and um, pay their own rent. <laughs> so I think there's some opportunity there um, to maybe they can sell that house and buy some land and, you know, get something they can live in for a year or so while they build a piece of, build a, a house. Mm-hmm. Um, very few people can buy land and build a house without very significant assets. So I think mm-hmm. um, the other thing I hear in this is like a sense that we should be able to do this. Yeah. When in reality, it's a very, I mean, I couldn't, oh. I couldn't do this. <laughs> you hit on something so important because I feel like I have this conversation a lot with people who feel so personally, um, deflated when they are in, now they can't buy a house, right? It's mm-hmm. like they just the math isn't mathing. Maybe right. it did two years ago when interest rates were lower, but even then you were in a much more competitive environment, so you were overbidding. And but yeah, I mean, all things kept the same. Interest rates have tripled and or more than doubled. So mm-hmm. your monthly payment for the same house two years ago is double and right. or fifty percent more. And so. <sighs> Renting is fine. I keep selling. It's fine. It's I fine. love renting. <laughs> yes. It's fine. Get it out of your, get your mom's voice and your father's yes. voice. Out and your grandparents' of your voice. And your grandparents' voice. And America's dream uh, that is also deeply problematic. Like real mm-hmm. estate is great and it, it has made a lot of wealth for the middle class um, and for the very wealthy. But, you know, it ties you down. It really secures where all of your extra spending is going. Um it can be fantastic. Like I personally made a decision to buy a very nice condo in downtown Portland, but I cannot own a car too. <laughs> you know, like right. I know that by taking the bus and taking public transit and walking everywhere, I'm saving seven to $800 a month. And that is very specifically funneling into my retirement. Yeah. And so I think it's just, we can't have it all, but we can be creative right. yes. about how we fulfill the value we have. Right. And back to our friend here, I think that you can get creative with the home and land purchase to some extent in terms of how the timeline and the financing and all of that, but you can't really get creative with investing. You just got to do it and start. You just got to do it. Put it in there and let it grow and ignore it. Just funneling. Right. And in terms of timeline, like sooner the better, like don't, don't wait for everything else to work itself out before you become more aggressive. This was such great advice. All right. Let's, uh, we have one other question. It's a little bit more straightforward, but again, I I sense the fear, which is normal. It is our friend Lucy, who is afraid of something related to retirement. And what I'm hearing is that She's using this fear in a healthy way to try to learn more because sometimes, as I write in the book, when you are afraid of something to do with money, what the fear is wanting you to do is to just get more educated, mm. ask for help. We don't know a lot. And, and in that place of not knowing, of course, fear is fertile, fertile ground for feeling scared. So yes, specifically, 
Her question, Lucy, is this. Here, actually, I want to read her a little note to me. She says, thank you for all you do. Love your advice and level-headed thinking, even when in panic mode. (laughs) She's 54, Lucy, and she's curious about funding her Roth IRA, which is managed by a robo-advisor. Additionally, she wants to fund a SEP IRA, which is managed by a human financial advisor. I wonder why though. That's me opining. Mm -hmm. I opened the Roth IRA, she said, about 30 years ago, but she has not funded it since then. Well, maybe she earned out of it or I don't know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes your ability to invest expires based on your income. But she says, I'm self-employed. I'm going to make about 80,000 this year. I am not clear on the IRS contribution limits. I know that I can put up to 25% of my income tax deferred into my SEP. But if I want to put some money into my Roth as well, does that count as part of my overall contribution limit? Am I limited to spreading 25%, which would be $20,000 across the two types of IRAs? Or can I put $20,000 into my SEP and an additional five thousand into my Roth IRA. Okay, so listeners, just to, in case you've fa- like fallen asleep here, this is <laughs> she's got the SEP IRA and a Roth IRA. The IRS does set a limit as far as how much you can contribute. The SEP and the Roth have different tax implications, though, right? With the SEP IRA, it works more like a traditional IRA. What you contribute today, you um, save on taxes today. The Roth IRA, you save on taxes down the road. You don't pay taxes on those distributions. <sighs> so all this to say. How should she balance these two investment vehicles, which have I love being able to combine retirement vehicles yes. that have different tax incentives? Yes. Um, does she have to worry about this twenty five percent limit though? Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good question. So I want to start with your fear question because you know what's really scary? The IRS tax code. <laughs> it is. It makes no sense. So I yeah. would say all of us just begin with knowing that there is no logic that you can apply to the tax code. Forget that there may be logic because it's a, you know, a series of decisions made by Congress that have been implemented into the tax code. And most people in Congress don't know anything about how the tax code actually operates. So it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a mess in there. So Mm -hmm. trying to say, if I can do this, can I do that for this other kind of account? It usually doesn't work. So at the bottom of this question is a good tax advisor. Whether it's a tax preparer, an enrolled agent, a CPA, you probably don't need a CPA at this level, but certainly a good tax uh, preparer can answer this question for you. And I think you pointed it to the really important element of this, Farnoosh, is we generally want to focus our saving on as a variety of tax vehicles I like to think about it as taxable accounts, tax-deferred accounts, and tax-exempt accounts. She's asking specifically about the tax-deferred account and the tax-exempt account, so SEP IRA and Roth IRA. I will say first off, almost none of our clients use SEP IRAs because they Mm -hmm. actually have a limited amount that you can put into them. Most of our clients use an individual 401k or a solo 401k, and most robo-advisors have that as an option. What I love about them is you can put $30,000 deferred if you're over 50 years old, plus 25% of the net income in your mm, solo, in wow. your sole proprietorship. So you can really, especially as we get older, you can really just shovel money over the wall and get tax, um, tax deferral on that. Um, so that's one thing I would say. The SEP always is tax deferred. Solo 401ks can actually be Roth solo 401ks. 
So you can do 30,000 into the Roth of your solo. Let me tell you as a financial planner that is like getting the keys to the candy store. Um, I love tax, <laughs> tax-free growth. So um, I would definitely talk to your tax advisor about that, whether you should actually be lo- looking at a solo. And then your Roth is really just a basic AGI question, adjusted gross income. It's a, num- a word and an acronym you hear all the time and you want to know what it is because it's what most of the tax incentives for retirement accounts, child tax credit, a variety of credits and benefits are tied to your AGI. And given what you've told me about your income, I think it's highly likely you will qualify for a direct Roth contribution. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would would have that conversation with your accountant. Um, The last thing I would say is when you're investing, you always want to be thinking about your after-tax return. And the best after-tax return you're generally going to get is put money into a Roth if you're under the 24% tax bracket and then just let it grow. Because in that, as that money grows, all that money is yours when you mm-hmm. distribute it out. Right. Whereas an IRA or a 401k, they're fabulous if you're over 24% because you're getting to defer taxes and pull your tax rate down now. But you do some portion of your account is going to go to taxes. So if you have a million dollar Roth versus a million dollar IRA, your million dollar Roth is worth more money. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just a, mm-hmm. it's a very odd way of thinking about it, but it's, I think the more um, sophisticated uh, frame to consider. I don't, can I, I hate that the Roth IRA has an income limit. I know. Uh, why, but, why, why do that? Mm. But the Inflation Reduction Act that just got passed significantly shifted all of that. So there's going to be far more options for Roths um, in retirement accounts like simple IRAs and mm-hmm. um, solo 401ks and so on. So um, there is a limit. A good tax advisor can help you massage that structure too. There's things called backdoor Roths. I don't know. There's ways to yeah. do it for sure. Lucy, I think... Like all, I would say this to anyone who has their own business, very important that you work with a an accountant that has experience working with other entrepreneurs. So probably also has a lot of experience and knowledge in uh, retirement planning and like the best mm-hmm. ways to uh, allocate your dollars to make the yes. most, to optimize for retirement. Yes. Um, the one caveat I would give to that is a lot of accountants are like, I just want to save you taxes today. And I'm always thinking about your 80-year-old's tax bill. So again, if you're under the 24% bracket, it's usually better to just pay the tax today and then let it grow with the glory of compounding till your far future self. Because, you know, my CPA never, ever brought up this solo 401k Roth thing. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to have a talk with you after. Uh, sorry, <laughs> after what? Yeah, I've been in a SEP for 10 years. Maybe it's time to find some. But you know what? It's I max it out and it's it's a lot. It's like $60,000 yeah. a year I'm investing totally. plus other investments. And so yeah. I always okay. feel like I'm, I'm doing fine. Like I've done the, I've run the numbers. I'm like, we'll have a lot in retirement. It's yeah. if, if God willing. So in, you know, stock market willing. So yes. I don't feel the need to like also take out a pension, no, which you no, can no. do, which I've been advised and or like a whole life insurance. No, thank oh. you. No. So I get sold a lot of bad stuff. I get tried yeah. to, people try to sell me a lot of bad stuff. It's, yeah. it's not working. Well, only the good stuff with you, Georgia Lee Hussey. Thank you uh, so much. And listeners, pleasure, I hope dear. that our conversation was helpful to our 
question askers, but also everybody else who's maybe thinking about the same things. And hopefully you got to see how fear can be a tool for you in your financial life through these real live questions. I so appreciate you, Georgia. You're bringing my book to life. And <laughs> it's a pleasure. Hope, yeah. Be, come back anytime. I will have you back soon. Excellent. Can't wait. 